Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. This is episode 10, and today we're going to be interviewing Shelly G. Hi, Shelly. How are you this morning? Hi, Jim. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Of course. No, I'm looking forward to hearing your story. It's bright and early here on Sunday morning about 9.30 a.m. So, And it's at 8.30 for you. Are you central time? Yes, I am. So you're even more bright and early. Yeah, I got good sleep last night, so I'm feeling good. All right, that's always important. So, Shelly, tell me a little bit about your childhood. Well, well, I'm the youngest of three. Um, Grew up in in Minnesota. Um, My dad was an alcoholic when I when I was young. And I had a mom that suffered from anxiety and panic attacks. So she stayed home with us, uh, took care of us very well. But uh, she didn't drive. She spent a lot of time in her room. And um, my dad was the main provider. Uh, He worked one job basically my whole childhood up until his retirement and um he he uh he got sober um and when he died three years ago he had 33 years um sober from alcohol so um you know i had some trauma in my childhood i had an uncle that committed suicide when i was 12 and um that was that was a, a huge, um, back in, back, back then that didn't really happen. And, um, you know, there was not services like there is today. My mom and myself cleaned up the mess. And as a 12 year old child, I should have never been allowed to do that. And I still suffer from that today. I'm working in counseling from that. Um, it, it, I'm a big advocate for mental health and, and suicide awareness. Um, you know, that, that kind of, I've carried that with me for the last 33 years of that vision of, of that day and, and that point in my life, um, especially since I had asked my parents to go there that day. My uncle actually um, murdered the next door neighbor and then and then committed suicide. So as a family um, and, a, and a, a big united family, extended family, um, that was that was a very tough tough situation for us. I can imagine. At that- at that point in in my life, my dad was sober. So, um, you know, my dad wasn't one of those um, get mean kind of drunks. It was um, he was a he was a good man, and but you know that was his vice. And at one point, he had five years sober, and then relapsed, and then it finally came to an ultimatum on April Fool's Day. And he went and lived with my my grandma and grandpa, his parents, and he stayed there for 30 days. 
and then my mom allowed him to come back into the house and um he he stayed sober since um one thing through all of that and and still to this day even though my dad is gone um my mom still brings up the past with my dad and his drinking and she did do Al-Anon when when we were growing up I remember being brought to the AA house and my mom would go do her group and and we would play and she needed that and and I understand now um I grew up with an alcoholic father and I never dreamt that my life would lead to alcoholism eventually that was not in my in my my life plan or on my vision board by any means oh I could imagine and um sorry to hear about a lot of what you went through but like you said a lot of that childhood trauma sticks with you for a while and even though you never imagined being led towards alcoholism, it still brought it out in you. Right. And I wouldn't say, uh, I didn't even drink till I I was, you know, I, I wasn't a young, like, teenage drinker. I think I had one wine cooler when I was 13 or something with my ex-brother-in-law. I never had that craving or desire Um I would say in my early 20s, I was more like a binge drinker, you know, the weekends, get a bad hangover, whatever, you know, I never, uh, I, I could keep everything in check. I could work, you know, and, and, and have fun on the weekends and maybe have a couple beers, you know, but I never, things never got out of control until later in life for me when I had more trauma and, and, and developed anxiety, had my first panic attack. And basically I used alcohol to be a, um, be my medication. And, and what, what started out to be, um, innocent spiraled out of control over, over a period of time, you know, over, over, I would say five years time, I, I, my life quickly went down the drain. When was the first time that you ever used for the specific purpose of, um, getting out of your head? Do you remember that? Um, I would say... You know, when I was married, I I was with someone, my high school sweetheart, for nine years, and um, we had a house together. We I had a business there. He cheated on me, and um, you know when we we drank together, and once he cheated on me, I I changed my career path. I got a job with Northwest Airlines, became a flight attendant. Mm-hmm and um, relocated to Michigan. But during that whole time, I never, alcohol was never an issue for me because I was always on call. If, if, if I needed to go do a flight, I needed to be to the airport within two hours. And, and that didn't bother me. I, I, I had no problem not drinking. Um, 
I worked for Northwest over 9-11, which um, was a very scary time because, you know, as, as a world, we didn't know understand what was going on. But me and that profession of being a flight attendant, um, it was even more scary. I remember when, I, when we finally started flying again and I got assigned my first flight, I literally went into the bathroom and threw up because I was just so scared of, you know, is this going to happen again? And um, I was supposed to do like a, a, a one day flight. And every time I thought I was coming back to Minneapolis to go home, I'd get ex- like, I'd get another flight added to my manifest. And finally, on the fifth day of them doing that, I went in to, um, to, to where I was in Minneapolis and said, I can't like physically, mentally, I can't do this anymore. Because I, um, I'd flown into New York and they didn't let us off the plane, but that was just kind of my breaking point. And, um, I would say when I, to get out of my head would be, uh, I would say after my first ex fiance cheated on me so i would have been about 25 26 years old okay but i did not but i did not um lean on it as a crutch at that point you know what i'm saying i i um people then i i did i i would say i was more of like a fun drunk but i remember getting you know angry with my mother when because my parents eventually relocated out to North Dakota and trying to leave my mom's house drunk one night and obviously she didn't want me to leave drive 300 miles home so she went and got my dad you know I sat and argued with her kicked my brand new car and then she went and got my dad and he just said my dad always called me Don Don you need to go to bed and I, of course, listened to him and went straight to bed. So. I'm sure your mother loved that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he got me. So, you know, it was it was after, um, you know, shortly shortly after 9-11, and I got furloughed from um, Northwest, I met my ex-husband, and... Um, well, I, I knew him through um, my first guy, and they raced snowmobiles together, and um, I reunited with him, and we quickly started dating, and I moved in with him, and um, life excelled very fast. Within two years, we were married. Um, three months later, we were pregnant with our first child, Um before we had her, uh, we had moved into a brand new model home. So within that first year, we had done marriage, baby, or marriage, house, baby. So that was, you know, and I'd waited till 28 to get married. I, I wanted to do life the right way and had the big church wedding. I uh, remember, you know, getting ready to walk down the aisle and told my dad, I don't think I can do this. 
and he just grabbed my hand and and you know I was a it wasn't that I didn't want to get married it was just fear you know fear of the future and um you know I I, I envisioned myself being married the rest of my life having my two daughters and living the perfect American dream family and after the birth of our second daughter I stayed home with both girls I'd quit my job and um I know for a fact I had postpartum depression I didn't lose my baby weight after her and immediately after having my second one um I I was drinking every day and from the time I had Maddie until the time I went to treatment was five years and I would say in those five years there was maybe 10 days I didn't drink I wouldn't say I, I got drunk every day but I at least had some some sort of beer in me so when I went to treatment she she never knew what it was like to have a sober mom you know she just knew what she knew and um, so when my girls were one and four, uh, I found out my, my ex-husband was cheating on me. And that's, that's when, that's when it was full bore, let loose, and Beer became my best friend because Beer didn't leave me, Beer didn't cheat on me, and you know, I still, I still was a good mom. I was, you know, I, I thought in my addict rational mind, I was being a good mother because I was at home with my kids drinking. They weren't with a babysitter. I wasn't at the bar, you know, um, I'm so very thankful that in that time of my reckless behavior, um, that nothing bad happened to either one of my daughters you know, there wasn't a fire, there wasn't something that, you know, because easily something could have happened. And I thank God every day that, you know, he was protecting our family because, you know, they had a mom that was passed out. And, you know, I mean, I, I drank until, you know, basically I passed out every day yeah and how and old were the kids what's that what's that how old were the kids when you started doing those type of things when you were they still about four and one when you were like passed out why were you be would you be watching them while you were drinking to the point of being passed out well i i would um at one and four i i was still living in the cities and um, it wasn't that bad. I know this sounds really bad as an addict, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't as bad as it got when, until we moved to rural Minnesota. But yes, I would, um, now mind you, when dad left my older daughter for about six weeks, I could not go anywhere without her next to me like a magnet. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't do anything. She wouldn't play with her friends because she was so afraid of her mommy leaving her. And that was exhausting. 
because I was used to having a partner and raising our kids. And, um, and there was back and forth, you know, um, mind games of, uh, you know, what he wanted and, and, you know, the distrust and the lying to me. And, um, you know, we, we, we separated, you know, I lived in the house with the kids and when he would take them, when he would take them to his parents, that's when I would binge drink to excess to the point where he would call the cops on me and say I was suicidal, which I wasn't. And I remember the first time the cops came and, um, you know, I was put in the back of a cop car and brought to the hospital and I'm in the back of the cop car crying to this guy, telling him I've never been in a cop car before, you know, I'm just, I'm just drunk and, you know, being evaluated and, you know, and then, you know, are you going to walk me in in handcuffs and, um, you know, meeting with uh, like mental health person in the, in the ER and just saying, I'm just going through a really bad breakup with my husband and he finally has the kids. And, you know, I think it was a lot of, um, manipulation on his part and, you know, Maybe he was concerned. I, I I would not have hurt myself, but um, it it was another it was another nail in the coffin as far as my trust went. And and I would say he called the cops on me three times for when he had the children saying because I was that drunk and saying you know she's gonna hurt herself and you know and, and that's not who I am. You know, I, I don't get the cops called on me and I don't get drug in, you know, and, and honestly, they never sent me to detox or whatever. They'd give me a bag of fluids, keep me there and me on my way, you know, so it, it, it's part of my story. It's part of my past. It's, um, it doesn't define me. It. It's 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 me understanding that um, that's how I coped was I numbed my uh, I numbed my pain by just drinking it away. Well, that's part of the problem when you get arrested is they treat. Well, I never it, even got arrested. Oh, when they took you to the hospital, but the thing is, they treat addiction. They look at you as more of a criminal versus more of someone that's sick. So right. it it's. Like you said, in a lot of situations, you just get a bag of fluids and they kind of spit you back out to go fend for yourself when somebody should have recognized, said this person needs help and maybe at least offered or found a way to get you into detox, into uh, then a, maybe an inpatient program for 28 days or however, how long they do it. Well, and you know what, to be honest with you, Jim, at that point in my life, I, I was in complete denial that um, I even had a problem. And if I would have went to treatment, it probably wouldn't have worked for me at that point. Yes, that I understand. You know, there was one time he had the children and I was up at my neighbor's and um, all of a sudden my parents found me up there. It was like two in the morning. And, you know, my mom and dad had maybe been to my house once 
and they drove from North Dakota and um, my mom says, I see you're sitting there with your, your, your best friends. Cause I had a case of beer right next to my chair and I, I got really flippant and, you know, defensive. And we went back down to my house, my garage and the neighbors could hear me yelling and, you know, um, basically what they were trying to do an intervention on me. And, um, so for those few days that they were there, I didn't drink. I didn't, um, you know, I played off like I was good and we went and got the kids and brought them back home. So my dad could, you know, my parents could see them while they were in town. Did you, did you know deep down inside that you weren't good? Were you, did you know that you were faking it and that? Oh, God, yes. The minute they, I, they didn't even get out of my development and I cracked open a beer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Mean, I, I was saying all the right things and yeah, I, I was totally snowballing them. Us, we're <laughs> good at saying the right, us addicts, we're good at saying the right things when we need something. Right, right. And literally they didn't even get on the highway and I'd already cracked open a beer. It was that, like... I was like, I fooled them, you know? And so eventually my ex and I did reconcile. Um, I dropped a bunch of weight and started feeling really good about myself. And um, I told him one night, you can have the kids. I'm going to go out. I'm going to find me someone. And I think the fact of, oh, wait, she might be moving on. And... Um, we ended up going to Mankato for the weekend. Of course, we drank together. And on our way home, I had my first panic attack. And he ended up bringing me into the ER. And um, the whole time I was there, he was watching NASCAR. And I'm hyperventilating, in, hyperventilating into a paper bag. And no support, no nothing. You know, and that's the anxiety, the panic attacks, the PTSD. That's that's when things really started to. Uh, that's when I spiraled. That's when. I mean, I've been dealing with panic for the last twelve years, and I've got, I've got it pretty much in check. But that's with taking medication on a daily basis that's um, making sure I take care of my mental health uh, self-care that's seeing you know my psychiatrist every week and checking in that's I was about to know. ask you and I'm gonna let you keep going there I was about to ask you though um, how what do you do what's your regimen so to speak when it comes because you and I were just speaking earlier before we started this about mental health so is there anything specific like, you know, that you do that you think would be beneficial to anyone that might be listening? Well, I would say, for one, if you are struggling with mental health or you think that, you know, you might have bipolar or any other kind of thing, we need to get that in check before that is so important in recovery. If your mental health is not taken care of it's not going to be good for you so reach out to your primary physician um, a trusted friend anyone and and 
tell them what is going on, explain, you know, what, you know, a lot of people that are using drugs get into these psychosis states where they, you know, they believe irrational thoughts and, you know, we've got to, there's such a stigma behind mental health and people are so afraid to talk about it. That's like the number one thing, especially after what we've been going through as a nation with COVID for the last year and a half is so many people are suffering from mental health and they're so afraid to go get help and be judged. I did some research for my book and if I remember correctly, I actually listed stats in there. And I think it's something along the lines of around 13% of people don't get help because they're worried about the stigma from either their neighbors and friends or the stigma from their employer. And that's a lot. 13% out of a few million people is a lot. Exactly. And, and the, and the thing about it is if do start medication, not, not every med is meant for every person. So it's going to be playing around with your medication and it's not taking the pill and the next day you're going to feel better. The medication has to get into your system and it's going to take, you know, four, maybe six weeks for you to really start noticing a change. But you have to be patient with that process. You have to be open with your um, whoever's prescribing you meds and say, hey, this is working. You know, I'm still feeling this. They might have to add something to it. They might have to increase your dose. They might have to play around with your meds a little bit. But if you do find the right meds, your quality of life is going to skyrocket and you're going to start to feel amazing. And once you have your mental health in check, that's that's a big piece to this addiction problem. I could speak from firsthand experience with that because I, as I mentioned to you, I have bipolar, OCD, ADHD. I have no problem admitting that, PTSD. So... One of the things I also did my research on is it's hard to diagnose somebody while they're high. So a lot of us don't get the right help immediately because a lot of us don't admit that we're using if we meet with people a lot of times. Oh, when I went to, okay, so when I had my first panic attack and went to my provider when I lived in my, um, my old, like our old house, I told him what was going on, and he told me if I didn't get my shit under control, he was going to put me into a mental house. And that was the worst thing anyone could have ever said to me because all that did was scare me even more that I'm not going to go back to that person for help because if I act like I don't have my stuff together, I'm being sent away. There was no compassion. There was no nothing. There was no asking what the underlying factors are that got me to that point. It was, you know, you need to get it together. We're going to, it, it still blows my mind that a provider would ever even say that to a patient. That I was reaching out for help and, and suffering severely. And, you know, Yes, I did put, get put on meds, but I drank with my medication. So it's not going to work if you are mixing your pills and, your, you know, it, that, that, that doesn't work. I was, drink, and, I was drinking because I was depressed, and I was depressed because I was drinking. It was mm-hmm. just a cycle. It was an endless cycle. 
Exactly. And so it took me finding the right person to talk to, being very open and honest, and making the time. Now, you know, mind you, when I started talking, you know, my children were probably at that time not quite two and five. And um, my neighbors made sure they had them. My dad said, if you need me to pay your co-pays, I want you to go to this every week. You need this so desperately. And I felt so good sharing with her and everything. Now, I, I got to the point where I couldn't even drive. Now, you're talking about a girl that, that flew around the world and then lost her ability to even drive with the kids because I was so afraid of having a panic attack in the vehicle with them and maybe causing a wreck. And so um, there was many years that I turned into my mom and I didn't leave a close circle from from my house and totally was dependent on other people to take me shopping. And, um, you know, I couldn't even get my, my daughter to preschool four miles down the road without having a panic attack, thinking about it, having a panic attack. Um, I would say after coming out of treatment, I, my, my ex-husband had been my biggest trigger for my anxiety because he was, he was ultimately what led to my first panic attack. So, you know, me addict thinking is he caused this for me. And all reality is probably genetic because a lot of people in my family suffer from it, but it was easier for me to blame him. And, um, you know, it's taken me a lot of being in a very uncomfortable situation and just pushing myself, proving to myself that I can do it. And if I do have a panic attack, I have the tools that I've learned over the years that I'm going to be okay. And no one's ever died from a panic attack, even though it feels like in the moment you are going to. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of stuff. It's talking well, myself through it. It's funny that you mentioned being uh, uncomfortable because when I was in rehab, I, I love how these um, old timers every now and then just come up with these nuggets. And he said, one of the things I learned is you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Exactly. And so when, when I was in treatment, they, my counselor knew, I mean, I was in the most broken, I I was a hot mess. I will tell, I'll be the first to admit it. I was, oh, oh boy. I was the most anxious, crazy, like, well, not crazy, but Every time I started getting comfortable in the situation, my counselor would shake me up. And I didn't understand at the moment, but, you know, she was she was preparing me to go back into the real world. And, you know, so I'll tell you a little bit about, um, so when we, when we relocated to our small rural town of less than 400 people, um, went from living in a, a beautiful brand new model home that, you know, we, we'd spent $185,000 on to 
um, my ex buying us a house, $18,000. It was a big change for me and and the girls. And, but it was, we were going to try a fresh start. And um, he commuted back and forth to the cities. I was home with the kids. I drank, of course. And about three months into us doing that, he just said to me one day, I'm going to go to the races and never came back. And so for the next mm, three years, I literally, all I did was drink. I lived on beer and cigarettes and self-pity until um until um in 2013 i felt a very eerie you know when they say you've got that that sense in your stomach that you get that feeling that sense i i knew something was up and um the kids were out at the farm with his side of the family over easter and come that monday um, there was a knock at the door, and I avoided it. And I just had a feeling it was CPS. And I went to my next-door neighbor. I called grandma, great-grandma. I asked her if there was something up. You know, I called him. I called people. Everyone lied to me. Um, I went to my next-door neighbor, and I told her, I said, I need help. And she, I said, I need to go to treatment and she said, no, you don't. And I said, she goes, you're not that bad. And this was my best friend, you know, for the past, you know, four years or whatever. And I said, there's so much you don't know. And there's so much I hide from you. I said, I need help. And that day she brought me into the doctor. They put me on, I want to say Ativan maybe. And then I went to the county and said, you know, I'm here. And um, I met with a chemical um, addresser, a chemical assessment addresser. And uh, I, at that point, I knew no- nothing about a Rule 25. And I met with Scott and told him my story. And he said to me, well, I'd called Project Turnabout. And they had told me it would be about $20,000 for me to go to treatment. And that was just a devastating blow. That's I another, didn't have $20,000 to go to treatment. That's another thing I mention in the book I'm writing is, besides the stigma of addiction and all that, it's we can't even get into treatment, some of us, because the financial burden it would cost on the family. And who, most people can't come up with that kind of money, like you said. Or, or as an addict, they've burned their bridges with their families so bad that the family is not willing to do that because they figure what's the use it may not work in their mind right now i was lucky that um my ex-husband's grandparents which would be my my girl's great grandparents um stepped in and said you're not going to take these children away from their mother you're not going to uproot them from their school their church girl scouts everything this is what they've known they've been with their mom their whole life we are going to take them so at 72 and 75 years old i signed over temporary guardianship of 
the girls and it was um, a few days before I could get into Project Turnabout. I went and stayed with the grandma and grandpa um, and the girls until they had a bed for me. And uh, I, at that point, I did not realize detoxing from alcohol was so dangerous. The da- most dangerous drug to relapse. Or I didn't know that either. When I went to rehab, I thought I was the only one that was in good shape because I thought people that were addicted to opiates and stuff, I thought they were the ones that were in danger and they were all like, no, 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 my friend. <laughs> that was not, because I was also on benzos. So I was on right. the two things that you can actually die from during withdrawal. Right. And um, I, I was very open and honest with everyone. I called my pastor first and I said, I'm going to get help. I called the school. I said, this is what's going on. I arranged for the bus to be able to go because grandma lives only three miles from us. Um, I put it on Facebook that I'm, I am going to treatment. I, I don't know how long it'll be till I see everyone again, but it's time to go take care of me and be the person that I need to be. And it was nothing but support. It was nothing but you can do this. And um, it's that funny. Monday, That's what's on the back of our sobriety chips and on our cause bracelets. It says you can do this. Right. And so um, that Monday morning, I went and the girls were waiting at the bus stop. I I went out, you know, and I gave them their little kisses and um, the bus took them away. And I went back and grandma was standing there waiting for me. And I just lost it. You know, what had I done to my children? You know, how did I pick alcohol over them? And it's just the unknowing of going into a treatment center for the first time of what is, what is, you know, is this going to work? You know, it's it's such a scary feeling of the unknown. And people look at the big picture when in reality, sometimes, you know, it, it's it's less than day by day. Sometimes it's hour by hour or five minutes at a time. It's those baby steps. And, you know, they drove me up. You know, I, I live about a half an hour from the treatment center. Um, we said our goodbyes. And um, I started my treatment journey. And like I said, I was a hot mess. And... Um, luckily during that time they had visitation and I was able to see my girls every Sunday. So when I seen them, I was there six days and, um, they told me I had visitors and the door was shut down this hallway, but there's glass and I could see these two little blonde heads. Now, mind you, at this time they're five and eight. And I opened the door and I hugged them like, you know, I had never hugged them. And the, the first thing out of my eight-year-old's mouth was, you don't even look like the same mommy. And that was she seeing someone with clear eyes, good complexion, not shaking, not slurring her speech. And that was my aha moment that in if... 
six days, my eight-year-old could see that much change, what could I do with the rest of my life? So she doesn't realize that that sentence just totally put the spark in me and the gumption that I could do this and I was going to do this and those girls were going to get their mother back. And it was... It was, it was hard work. It was, you know, I I was going to do 30 days there and I actually extended myself an extra 15 days because I wanted to make sure that I had all the tools in my toolbox. When I left there, I was most prepared to go back home and be the mom that I needed to be. And Um, You know, it was the structure that I needed, the routine that I needed, taking medication on time. Um, When I got there, I started the AA book and I opened it up and read it from cover to cover every night when I went to bed. And when I finished it, I started it again. And a highlighter was my best friend. Yep. (laughs) And now, you know... At this point in my life, I'm 37 years old, and I'm with a lot of young people in treatment, and a lot of chaos, a lot of, um, you know, living with 20 women, communal living is is a little crazy, and when you do drug histories, uh, I would sit there with my mouth open, because I wouldn't even know what half the drugs were, and my thing was, I'm just an alcoholic, well... I had to quickly realize that an addict is an addict. It don't matter what our vice is. Yep. You know, we all are addicted. And so I had to change my thinking and kind of turned into a mother hen. But I was the girl in the back corner working on puzzles and staying out of the drama and, you know, and just jumping in with my feet and, and soaking everything like a sponge and um, I still have all my homework and every card that anyone sent me while I was in treatment, the pictures my kids made me. And I keep that as a reminder. I made a wooden bracelet and I wear that. I have a cross bracelet my sister gave me on my one year sober. I wear that and it's a reminder of I do not forget my treatment stay whatsoever. I do not forget how proud I was when I had a week sober and the feeling of, you know, because when I was, when I was at home, I would make rules. I'm not going to drink on Sundays. I'm not going to drink by, you know, at five before five. I, I broke all those rules the minute I set them, you know, I, I needed a place to go to, unchecked from reality, plug into me, and learn about alcoholism, addiction, why we do the things we do. Um, and it was, you know, the rubber was hitting the road at that point. And that's when the real real work begins and the emotional work and, and the uncomfortable feelings. And that's when a lot of people want to bail treatment is because they don't like those uncomfortable feelings and they want to go use because for the first time in a long time, they're actually feeling emotion. And for a lot of people, it's scary. 
and it is, but we have to work through that. We have to cry. We have to let those things out. And part of healing and figuring out what led us down that road to begin with. And you can speak to all of this because for all the listeners, you're a certified, board-certified drug counselor, if I'm not mistaken. I'm a Minnesota board-certified peer recovery specialist okay. and um, a TMA um, a human service technician. And I work in um, uh, inpatient um, drug and rehab facility in Minnesota that offer also offers gambling addiction, one of four in the United States. Um, I, I can work anywhere in our facility, but my main, my, my, my main area is I work in our detox center. So I work with, um, people coming in on all, every sort of drug and, um, and I'm there, I, I'm, I'm there for a reason. I'm, I'm there because I know what it's like to be there. I never dreamt that I would be there um, doing what I'm doing. But yes, this is now my passion is um, helping, helping people see that there is hope and we can change. And if you want recovery, it is possible. So once I left 45 days of inpatient treatment, I did outpatient treatment through Project Turnabout for four months, three nights a week for three hours a night. And then after I finished that, I did continuing care one night a week for three hours. So all in all, I did um, about nine months worth of treatment. And, you know... 45 days of inpatient, but as of right now, I've almost got eight and a half years sober. So for me, I was one of the lucky ones that treatment has worked on the first try. And knock on wood, I've never had a craving to use alcohol since then. Um, When I have an intoxicated person come into detox and I do their breathalyzer, and they maybe blow a point three, and that booze smell. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me because I know they're there for help. But I usually have to go outside and take a deep breath, and then I say a prayer, and I thank my higher power that I got a second chance at a new life, a sober life, and that um, you know that person makes it through recovery and if I can help them in any way I will do so so for me it's gone full full circle I never dreamt that um, seven years after leaving turnabout I would be back there working and now I'm working full time and I'm constantly um, educating myself doing whatever I can to better me so I can help better work with the addict alcoholic that comes in. And it's most of the time, it's just that they need someone to talk to. They need to get those feelings out and they need to get out of their head. That's what I call it. You're stuck in your head. You're stuck in your thoughts and you've got to get out of that, that feeling of, um, 
you know, let's start journaling. Let's start from day one. You might not see the progress, but in 30 days, you're going to look back and say, holy smokes, have I changed? And the beautiful thing about it is I work when I see people at their sickest, their weakest, their most vulnerable. And then I also work during medication line. So I get to see them progressing as they're there through their treatment stay. And, you know, I, I get to see them laughing and smiling and coming to me saying, I, I got to talk to my child that I haven't talked to in forever. You know, a man crying that, you know, my child finally answered the phone. And that's what it's all about right there is watching these people grow and start enjoying recovery and believing in themselves and 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 wanting recovery for them and you know yes we do have repeat customers people that relapse and they come in and they're you know very shameful and whatever and my first thing is i'm glad you're safe and you're alive and i'm glad you're back because in my book addiction doesn't win we keep fighting it I don't care if it's your first time or your 25th time. We never give up. And, you know, that's that's my message is, you know, and, and, and part of it is sharing my story of a mom that's missing her children and wants to leave. And I'm like, you know what? I've been there. I know what it's like. My kids have never been away from me either. And, and <clears throat> something about, Recovery also is, you know, when you say that people come back and they're relapsing, um, this is something that I actually have just written, and I hope it makes sense to people, but I wrote that it, that we all have to come to the admission of defeat before we can defeat anything ourselves. Right. And some people that walk in the doors, they're just not quite ready. Yep. You know? Their family might want it for them. Their spouse might want it for them and whatever. I might want it for them, but until they actually want it for themselves. And, you know, we talk about hitting rock bottom. And I think the whole time that we're in active addiction, we are already in rock bottom. Because it takes so much energy and effort and exhaustion being an addict and alcoholic. It, it, it's 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 what we revolve our life around, and once we free ourselves of that and start to live a new normal life, our new normal, it's it's just it's amazing that you know you're not worrying about you know how much liquor is there when you're going to get to the liquor store, who's working, you know. I, it's not the addict wondering, you know. What am I going to pawn to get my next fix? You know, I mean, that's exhausting. It's, I've talked to people that have been up for 20 days. And I just think, how does a body even handle that? And then they, they come in and they're, you know, a little, I would say, we'll just use the term hyper for a little while until they kind of crash. And then they might sleep for four days straight. Because their body is so worn out, exhausted from them being the addict. Or people that haven't eaten in, 
you know, gays come in and they literally, you know, so undernourished that, you know, they're finally in a place where they're warm, they're safe, they're getting fed. And everybody um, has their own, everyone has their own recovery. Exactly. It's, you know, like I tell them, it's it's not what works for me is going to work for you. This is a tailored to you experience. And that's what you all know? addicts need to remember is, it's once again, just like you said, it's tailored to you. So when you hear stories of other people, <clears throat> you should definitely listen to them and just take what will work for you. Because not everything a person might have said is going to work for you. But there are per certain things that you might relate to and say, I get that. Take those things and discard the rest. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I tell people, you know, this is a time to be selfish and, and worry about, take care of you. You know, there's so many times a, a male patient will be on the phone and the woman will call in and they'll get them so worked up and, you know, and, and I'll finally just say, you know what, it's time to hang up. And after they hang up, I say, do you understand why I did this? This is not being beneficial to your recovery. She's getting in your head. Now you want to go execute your time. Let's just talk about this. Let's process this. Let's think about this. You know, let's not make rash decisions. And usually, you know, we can talk through things. I can keep people in treatment. And, you know, because ultimately I want them to make it to their out date and to move on to their next step of life. And sometimes it's being that hard person when I see that negative, chaotic behavior that I need to put an end to it only because I'm trying to help them. You know, I, I, I don't want them to, you know, people think they'd rather go execute time than be in a treatment facility. I've never been locked up, but I I would sure think that we have more to offer than a jail. You know, we've got mental health, we've got nursing, we've got uh, counselors, we've got everyone that's there to, to help them where you want to go sit in a jail cell and and be alone no and that's the that's the important thing about what you're doing is the 12-step work because the 12-step is you know passing along the message and helping the still suffering addict right and every day that i work i'm for sure doing that and i know um when I was in treatment, I got a special visit that I, I wasn't expecting. It was the day I presented my first step, and I was emotionally exhausted. And all of a sudden, I was being taken, and I didn't know what was going on. And here, it was my dad, my sister, and my brother-in-law. My sister had gotten a special uh, visitation set up for me, and I had no clue about it. And it was because I had been putting in the hard work and I was doing what was needed of me. And because of that, I got rewarded this, this gift of this visit. And, um, you know, my dad being a recovering alcoholic, he, him and I walked down and we had this, this 
pop down by um, our gym workout area. And that when I'm at work, I feel his presence and I, I feel him giving me the strength and, and giving me the courage to do what I do. And of anyone that got me in this world, it was my father because he knew what it was like to suffer from alcoholism. He knew what it was like to be in a treatment facility. He knew what it was like to be on the outside. And, you know, he would text me every day, um, how are you doing? Send me, um, you know, little motivational quotes. And so when I lost my father, I felt like I lost my biggest cheerleader in life. And, um, you know, I still got lots of cheerleaders out there, but he's the one person that absolutely in this world got me because he, he, he'd done the same thing. And so that is my, my hopes in doing what I'm doing is because I've walked the walk and talked the talk. Now I can share a little of my story to show people because I suffered in silence for many years and I never dreamt that I would become an alcoholic. I never dreamt that I would go to a treatment facility and I never thought when I was actively drinking that I would ever be able to get sober. And once I was able to go into treatment and find these tools I know now that I had to go through all of this in my life to get me to the point where I'm at today, where I can help do that 12 step and be there for the addict alcoholic to show them that there is hope, that this is possible. We can change. You can make amends to your family, get your family back. And every day that I stay sober, I make amends to my children. For, for what I put them through in the past. Um, my biggest thing is I have a hard time forgiving myself for for what I've done. And that's, that's a work in progress. Because, you know, here I am eight years sober, and I still can't forgive me. So I can I can talk to talk to other people. But it, it, sometimes I don't take my own advice. I know that's the worst thing. But we, we want to thank you for <laughs> Your 12-step work, that's really amazing. Your story was great. And you're living proof that, like you said earlier, you can recover. It does get better. You can work the steps. Um, but was there anything that you wanted to, I guess, the kind of plug for anyone in your area? It sounds like you have a great rehab facility right there. Yes. Um, I work at Project Turnabout. It's located in um, Granite Falls, Minnesota. And um, we are an inpatient facility for um, addiction, alcoholism, gambling. And um, not too far from us, up in Wilmer, we are getting, now we are a high-intensity treatment facility. Up in Wilmer, um, this is an amazing thing that Project Turnabout has going on, is that we've got a whole block that we've acquired it starts off um, on the corner with an old house. It's called Sherry's Place, and that is sober living for women in recovery. Behind that is the alcove. It was um, it's a cute little um, alcove of an old house 
that was being torn down that they have restored and that is like a meditation area um next to that is a new 20 some bed um low medium intensity inpatient all women's um treatment facility and we'll do inpatient treatment when you turn the block there is um townhouses for women and children being reunited back together to live in and then at the end of the block there is a beautiful park for these mothers with their children to spend time together and um enjoy sober life living so that is one exciting thing that's been missing out there is um, resources for women in recovery and I'm proud to say that Project Turnabout owns that whole block and has dedicated it to women in recovery and we also have a halfway house in Marshall that um, you know that's for men and um, you know Project Turnabout's been around for 50 years and we are um serving people every day and um we're changing lives every day and look at me i'm living proof that miracles do happen there and if you want it you can have it and and people the one thing about it i would say at least a third to maybe a half of the staff that work there are in recovery so that's an awesome thing is that um People are changing their lives, going back to school, becoming LADCs, becoming nurses, and that me that that's a whole other thing when you have people that um, have have walked the walk and talked the talk, helping you because we understand you, and and not saying that other people that haven't been through addiction don't, but we bring a, a whole new different perspective to the table. That is great. <clears throat> And, and also for everyone in this group, um, I am a peer recovery specialist. I am more than willing if you want to message me, inbox me, if you are struggling, if you need resources, if you just need someone to talk to, if you're looking for a female sponsor. Um, my my phone is always on. My, my kids understand my work in recovery is majorly important in my life. So if anyone does just need someone to talk to someone to vent to um like jim i i am 100 percent here for you and and if you are still the struggling addict you know i pray for you and and i hope that you know you do find your journey to recovery because once you do it is amazing that is absolutely great and that's one of the things also that addicts anonymous has is we have a virtual sponsor program so anybody could reach out to me and also in case for some reason you just need to, I could refer you over to Shelly and make sure you guys get her information. So always realize you could reach out to either her or myself. And we, yes. we just want to thank Shelly G so much for being on the podcast. I think this went awesome. So thank, thank you very you much. Thank you for having me, Jim. And I look forward to writing my story for the book. Yes, that's awesome. And so if you guys like what you hear, give us a rating on iTunes. Also, come join the Facebook group, Addicts Anonymous. We do host uh, nightly Zoom meetings a few times a week and on the weekends. 
And we're also working on um, having a blog. And as Shelly mentioned, in the future, we're going to have a book coming out for the group. So that's all we have today. And until next time.